we exist to come alongside people who are hurting, who are broken, who are messed up, to come alongside them and give them love and to give them grace and to give them encouragement until they can rise above it and walk on that path on their own. We are Pathway Church, located in Burleson, Texas. We worship together, we serve together, and we grow together. Good morning, everybody. I want to especially welcome those that are online. Thank you for joining us wherever you are in the world. Uh, we, we give a great thanks and gratitude for your joining us in worship. And we want you to know that though you are not in the place physically, many times we can sense your presence. So please engage right there in the chat and those that are your host online. And maybe someday, maybe some of you, where you're near or far, you'll actually kind of be here and we can meet in person. And we would love that privilege and opportunity to doing that. And if you're in the house here and you're brand new here and you're looking for a church, home. Uh, We would love to connect with you out in the crossing. Uh, We hope you'll stop by the connection point. We have a gift we'd like to give you and uh, myself and other pastors will be out there roaming around. We would love to speak uh, and kind of get to know you. Uh, Let's begin in prayer. Uh, Good morning, God. Uh, We've come to worship you, to be in your presence. Uh, Some of us here come, God, we, we need your presence. We got stuff going on in our lives. We're trying to sort it out. We need some enlightenment. Some of us are in relationships that are brand new, and we're trying to navigate that. God, some of us have been in relationships for a long time, and we got some family dysfunction, some family dynamics. It's just been hard to overcome. So, yes, God, we come to worship you, but we come for some help, and we know that our help is in you. Our help is in Jesus. And so we pray as we open your word that you would uh, make that help available to us whatever that need may be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to begin by reading several passages of Scripture. We'll place them on the screen, but I'm just going to dive in and start reading. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 33. It says, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve, and he said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Then he took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Luke chapter 9, verse 46, an argument started out among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. And then he said again, Whoever welcomes the little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is the least among you who is your servant. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercised authority over them called themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. And one more in Galatians 5, 1 verse, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. 
By, by now, you practically you figured out that our love language for this weekend is acts of service. And I find this very, very interesting and sometimes a little bit daunting. But I think this is true of me and maybe of some of you. That I can read about serving. I can study the Bible about serving. I can hear what Jesus has to say about serving. And I can be touched very deep in my heart about serving. But then I go home. Or then I go to work. And I see these people around me. Some of them I'm not sure I care for very much. Some of them hurt me. Some of them have not measured up to my expectations. Some of them, you know, I kind of had this little conflict going on with them. And I have to stop and ask myself, am I really pro-serving? Am I really? I really think this particular love language is the most challenging one for Jesus to teach. Jesus embodies all five of the love languages. And he does them all well and teaches them all well. And not that it was hard or challenging for Jesus to teach it, but the challenge was for people like you and me to buy into it. We hear about it, we read about it, we study about it, but actually doing it is a total other thing. And so I think this is why we see when you read the Bible that Jesus taught about this from the very minute he began his teaching until his very last breath on the cross. So what I'm going to do here this weekend is this morning, particularly, I want to look at a couple more of Jesus' teachings about a little deep dive at what he says about what it is in this love language of acts of service, and then kind of look at some ways we can practically implement this in our families, in our workplaces, in our homes, and even right here in our church. So I'm going to be over here, I guess, I think it's in Luke chapter 17. If you want to find that, we'll kind of read one little passage, Luke chapter 17. Uh, Again, a story taught by Jesus about this issue. Verse 7, he says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing, looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that, you may eat and drink, isn't that what he'll say? Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty, our responsibility. Now, this is a pretty interesting story that Jesus would tell this because Jesus, we all know and understand, he is the king of servanthood. He is the master of humility. And yet he tells this story about a master who has his servants, and he doesn't even tell them thank you. And one of the reasons Jesus is telling this story is the disciples' resistance to serving. Perhaps you picked up on the stories we read at the very beginning of this message that so often they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest, who was going to be the most important. So Jesus kind of appeals to that mindset of theirs to be the boss, to be the leader, by telling them a story. It begins there in verse 7 by saying, suppose one of you has a servant. In other words, suppose you're in charge. Suppose you're the boss. Suppose you're the leader. And then he tells them this little parable, tells a little story, and he paints the workplace. He paints the workplace where there is these employees who feel entitled, these employees who are underperforming. Anybody ever in your workplace notice some people, maybe yourself, I hope not, who have been consistently underperforming but always feeling a little entitled? 
And that's the picture that is painting. This worker seems to have an unwilling spirit. Now, if he was telling this story in this day and time, I think he might say it like this. Suppose one of you is married, and you and your spouse both work outside the home. And you both show up at the end of the day at home at the very same time. And when you walk in the house, you both see uh, that the kids are ill, the toilets are backed up, the clothes are everywhere, the kitchen's a wreck, the laundry hasn't been done, and the kitchen has stuff sitting all over the place. And you walk into the house. And one of you, you go and you take care of your being, you take off your clothes, uh, you hang them up, you throw your socks and underwear in the dirty clothes, and you change, and then you go into your spouse and you say, hey, look at me. Let me tell you what I did. I hung on my clothes, I took my socks in my drawer, I took care of my stuff, and now I'm going to let you take care of everything else, and I'm just going to come sit down here and rest, and when you get finished, make sure you have me a dinner so I can celebrate all the responsible things I did when I got home from work today. How many of you would put up with that, Jesus would say? Or he's saying, it's kind of like you, you're a boss, and you have this, you have this little company, and you're the boss, and this employee shows up, and they say, hey, boss, I want you to know, I want you to know I got up on time. I want you to notice, I want you to notice I made it to work on time. I got to my desk by 8 o'clock. I was there. I opened my computer. I'm booted up. I'm ready to go. I, I'm doing exactly what you asked me to do. Now, I want to raise. How many of you, he's saying, how many of you would put up with that? That's kind of what he's saying in the story. And all the disciples kind of say, well, no, we wouldn't put up with that. No way. That's not okay. We would say, listen, you got to get your act together. you got to do your job, and you got to do it with an attitude. I mean, you just got to, this is what is expected. This is the bare minimum. You're, you're doing that. And then Jesus flips the story on him down here in verse 11, verse 10, and he says, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. We have only done our basic minimum responsibility. And here's what Jesus is saying. Hey, disciples, I want you to be a great servant. And a great servant doesn't say, hey, look at me. Look what I did. Pat me on the back. Reward me. Puff me up. Make me feel good about myself. He is saying a great servant does not do that. And this is one of the key lessons I hope you will take away from this part of the message. Number one in your notes, that unobserved and unspoken acts of service are a great sign of spiritual growth. That's what he's teaching here. See, I see this happen so many times with baby Christians. Or maybe when people first get married. Or people first start dating. Or a child or a son kind of starts doing chores around the house. You're doing this act of service for someone and you feel like you've done something heroic. And you want somebody to notice what you did. To puff you up, to make you feel good, to pat you on the back. Hey, look at me, look at me. Look what I did. I did it all by myself. And Jesus is saying that the unspoken, the unobserved acts of service is a sign of spiritual growth and maturity. Mother Teresa, when she was asked, why do you serve so much? She said, I serve simply for the joy of serving. 
I don't serve the people in my life so they will look at me, so they will notice what I did, so I can get praise and attention. I just do it because I like the joy of serving. It's not heroic. I don't feel heroic. But so often, when you start serving in your church, you start serving your marriage, you want to look what I have done, like it is something that is a hero would do. When you begin to mature spiritually, you begin to grow as a Christian. You begin to grow in a relationship. Some of the great things in your life are the things you no longer think about. The thoughts that never come to mind are the words that never come out of your mouth. That's a sign of your spiritual maturity or your growth in the relationship. It's kind of like when someone finally decides to get sober. Someone struggles with sobriety. They're a drunk, whatever, whatever their issue. And finally, they decide, you know what, I'm going to get sober. And then they start, they start getting dry. They start cleaning up. And for a while, it feels heroic. I mean, every day, they just feel like they've conquered the mountain. And every week, it's just so heroic. And they, want, and so, they feel so good about themselves. And they should. And people are patting back and encouraging them. And they think that way. This is heroic. But you show me a good sobriety person some 20 years later. They no longer think those thoughts. They no longer feel like it's heroic. They matured in their sobriety to understand that their sobriety is just moral sanity. It just is. And they're just grateful because they know the only way they have become sober for 20 years is to depend upon the power of God in their life, to give them guidance and to give them strength for God's power. And so they're just grateful. And so they just serve God out of gratitude. Not look at me, not come on to me. Now, before I get into the next story, we're going to skip this story to another one. I want to give you a key lesson from the story we're about to read. And here it is, agape love. We're talking about agape love in this series. Agape love, number two, looks for a chance to serve. Looks, searches for the opportunity to serve. Love serves. Where there is a serving problem at work, where there's a serving problem in a family, where there's a serving problem in a church, where there's a serving problem in a marriage, there's a love problem. Because love, agape love, serves. Now, we're going to be in another story here in Luke chapter 7 that Jesus tells. In Luke chapter 7, you're going to notice that Jesus is invited to this dinner. And he's invited to a house of someone who is a religious leader. And what I want you to understand is that when you are invited into back in this day, when you're invited into someone's house as a guest of honor, and if you have more rank and more status than the person who's welcomed you in all situations, but especially then, there's certain service there are certain acts of hospitality that you would expect when you came into that dinner. Certain just common, pra- much like when you come into someone else's house here, if someone comes to your home, there's some common acts of hospitality and service that they're going to expect. And the most basic is you're going to welcome them, right? You're going you're to notice them. You're going to welcome them. Now, back here in the ancient world, in the day of Jesus, one of the ways that you welcome someone is that you would give them a kiss. Not just a handshake, but a kiss. That was their custom. And so if you walked in and you were the person of higher honor and status and the person who's hosting the home and y'all were equal in honor and status, you would kiss them on the cheek. 
If you're the student and it's your teacher that's coming to dinner, or if you're a child and it's your mom and dad, you're welcoming them, you would kiss them on the hand. Another thing that you would do when you walked into this common practice of serve is washing feet. You did not have a meal without someone's feet being washed. And again, if you come in, you're a person of higher level status and honor and recognition, and you who are the host or equal status, you yourself would wash your guest feet. You could get your servant to wash their feet, or you could give them water and they could wash their own feet. Even though that was okay, considered a little bit of a slam to have them wash their own feet, but it was within code, it was okay. Another thing that happened is that you would anoint them with olive oil. They live in this desert dry land. They would come in for their skin, for their dryness. You would give them some, some oil on their body. Now, Jesus is invited to this dinner at the house of Simon, and Simon doesn't do a single one of these things for Jesus. No greeting, no kiss, no washing of feet, no anointing of oil. And this is not a subtle omission. This would be like somebody coming to your house and you don't acknowledge their presence. You ignore them. You never acknowledge they're there. You don't welcome them. You don't make a way for them. No common courtesies, no nicety. That would be exactly the situation here. And so the drama, the tension in this dinner party would have been so thick because everybody would have noticed it would have been a slight to this rabbi, a slight to Jesus. Now, there's a woman who is present at this dinner party. And this woman shows up because this is a public event. I've mentioned before that when the, in the Middle East, ancient Middle East, in Israel even today, most of the homes have these courtyards. And they would have these sort of banquets on an outside courtyard. So anybody could be walking by, hear the noise, hear the celebration, hear the preparation of food, and they could just kind of notice and kind of pop in. And so this woman does that. And so this woman would not be expected. She would be unexpected because she's a sinful woman. She is a prostitute. Everybody in the village knows of this woman, her reputation gone before her. But something is going on within this woman because earlier sometime in the day, she had come across and heard this man, Jesus. And when she heard about this man, Jesus, and he taught, something stirred within her. It touched her deeply within her heart. And she asked herself a question. And the question is this, how did I get here? How did I get to, this is where my life wound up. How did I get here? Have any of you, I wonder if some of you have asked that question yourself. Um, those that are online, maybe, maybe you have asked yourself that question. You got, got to a place in your life and you examine in your life and you go, I cannot believe it. How did I get here? Because I make you a promise, no little girl ever grows up dreaming. One day when I get to be a grown woman, I'm going to sell my body for sex. No little girl has that dream. No, 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 no. No little girl has that dream. How'd she get there? At one moment, this little girl, this little girl was held in the arms of some mother or some woman, and she was fed and she was nursed. And this woman, this mother prayed over her, worried over her, fret over her, had all these hopes for her future. How'd she get here? Men, maybe her dad never showed up. 
Maybe her dad showed up, but instead of listening, all he did was a talking. And it was always, you, you, you. Better not do this. Better not do this. Better not do that. Better not do that. Maybe dad never showed her agape love. He never bothered to learn her love language to really know what would make his little girl tick. Maybe her husband walked away and left her on the side of the road to fend for herself. Maybe in that day and time, her only hope of survival to provide food for her little baby was to sell herself. She hears that Jesus is coming to this dinner. She was hoping she could hear more. So she shows up at the dinner and she notices what is going on and she would not have been invited. She would not have been expected. And she's kind of watching from the shadows and she sees how Simon is not being kind to Jesus, not welcome him. And she's welled up with anger. She's kind of overwhelmed because, because, I mean, this is the one guy who kind of gave hope to restore her, kind of made the possibilities. I mean, she heard from him, and he is so, and she said, what can I do? I want to do something. i got to make Jesus feel more welcome. But she can't just walk into the party, walk into the banquet, and kiss Jesus. Can you imagine? If she would have walked in and kissed Jesus on the cheek, can you imagine the talk? Can you imagine what would have happened in that setting? I promise you this, somebody would have taken a video Posted it. And everybody would start talking, gossip, 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 posting, salacious comment, negative little comment about her, negative comment about Jesus, condemning, judgmental. I can't believe that happened. I can't believe he let it happen. I can't believe she's even there. Who would let her be there? Blah, 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 blah. Because none of us ever, Christians, do stuff like that, do we? So she thinks, I can't kiss him on the cheek, but I could kiss him on the feet. Because to kiss somebody's feet was a lowering yourself to absolute self-degradation and humility of how less you are and how great they are. So I want you to get the feeling of the drama. Jesus is at the table, and the scriptures tell us. He's reclining at the table, the verse actually says. It means his feet are away from the table. They didn't have chairs, so he's probably leaning on one elbow and leaning up toward the table, so his feet are out away from the table. And she walks up behind him, and she kneels down at his feet. And I can just picture that Jesus, he feels someone kneel at his feet, and he turns, and he locks eyes with the woman. And that woman locks eyes with him, and everybody is looking at the woman, I promise you, at that party. They're watching, what is she going to do? And I can just sense her heart just pounding with fear, with shyness, with embarrassment, but also this utter excitement. Maybe this, a feeling of, of great love. Because she looks into the eyes of this man, and he looks at her, eyes locked in. She's looking straight into the eyes of Jesus. 
All she could feel is love from him. Somebody who wants the best for her. Somebody who will work, she senses, for her good only with wanting nothing back. And I will tell you, very few times has she ever looked into the eyes of a man who didn't just want something back. Who didn't see her but nothing but an object to satisfy his own desire. But when Jesus looked at her, he saw for who, who she really was. He saw a daughter a child of God. He saw someone like a friend. He saw like his own sister. He saw someone's little girl. And she senses that's what he sees. And so she's knelt down at Jesus' feet. And before she can kiss them, I can just sense the tears just begin to flood, 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 flood out of her eyes. And Simon has not washed Jesus' feet. Mandatory before you have a meal. And so now she's washing Jesus' feet with her tears. Tears of sadness because of her own sin. How did I get here? Tears of gratitude that Jesus saw her for who she really was and forgave her. Tears of joy that finally someone had given her hope. And so she's washing the feet of Jesus. And now she's got to dry it. And she knows she didn't have a towel. She can't ask Simon for a towel. He won't give her a towel. And so she has the most horrendous breach of etiquette and hospitality in a person's home. This woman... This woman let down her hair in public. And please mark you women, in this day and time, a woman never let her hair down in public because it was considered too provocative for men to handle. A woman only let her hair down in the privacy of her husband's bedroom or with another woman present, but never in the presence of another man. And if a woman let down her hair in the presence of another man besides her own husband, it was cause for divorce. And she lets her hair down and everybody watches. Huh, I wonder how many times she's done that. Many, 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 many times. For many, many, many different men. And now she does it. One more time. In public. For the right reason. She drives off the feet of Jesus. And then the scriptures tells us she has this little alabaster jar of perfume. It was probably a flask around her neck. It was the tool of her trade. She took it with her wherever she went to meet her John. And it was expensive. And the scriptures say she emptied it all out 
all of it, all of it, all of it on Jesus' feet as a way of saying, I'm never going to need to use this again. I'm pouring out my sin. I'm pouring out my past. I'm pouring out. It's almost like a symbol of a new life coming to me. She pours it out. And we see here in verse 49 that Simon the Pharisee, who invited all of this to come, he's going, whoa, 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 Jesus, he, he, he can't be a prophet. He can't be the guy. Because if he was the guy, he wouldn't be hanging out with somebody like this. He wouldn't let her within 10 feet of him. And then Jesus tells Simon a little story. He says, Simon, verse 41, Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other owed him 50. One was wealthy, one was pretty good shape. But neither of them had enough money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of them both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon said, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt. That's the one who will love him more. And he said, you have judged him correctly. And then Jesus turns it, and he goes into this very, very interesting conversation. What I think is one of the most interesting conversations in Scripture. And I, I really wish I could, I could tell this in such a way where you would really get the true essence of, of, of capture of what is going on. But you'll see right here in verse 44. It says that he turns to the woman and he says to Simon. Now, up to this point in the story, in this situation of this, what's happened at this dinner party, Jesus is, is talking to Simon. He's just talking, talking, talking to Simon. But now he, he, he's locked eyes with the woman. He's locked. I mean, she's looked at him. She's, he, he's looking at her. I mean, just locked in. I mean, just zero. And everybody's looking at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. Looking at her, talking to Simon. Here's what he says to Simon. Simon, you did not give me any water for my feet. He was really being pretty nice. He could have said, hey, dude, nobody washed my feet. You didn't get on your knees. But he just said, you didn't give me. He was pretty, pretty courteous to him. You didn't give me any water. And then he said, but she, this woman, she wet my feet with her tears. She washed them, wiped them with her own hair. You didn't do any of that. And then he says, verse 45, you didn't even give me a kiss. Church, to really get this, you got to understand. A kiss was just as common as somebody coming to your house and you shaking your hand, didn't that say, glad you're here. And for them to stake out, shake that out there your hand and you not shake it back, a sign of disrespect and dishonor. At least, if not a kiss on the cheek, a kiss on the hand, just something, nothing. But he said, not only did you do nothing, she kissed my feet and from the time I entered, she's not stopped. He probably had said, hey, that's enough, that's enough, that's enough, that's enough. I can just picture you saying that. And not only that, you didn't put any oil on my head. Any of that cheap olive oil that's everywhere around. I mean, you have plenty of that. You didn't do that. But she, she poured out this perfume, this very expensive perfume. And she didn't put it on my head. She considered herself a sinful woman. I'm a holy man. She humbled herself lowered herself and she just poured it all over my feet and then the story radically changes for the first time 
Jesus speaks to the woman. He's looking her right in the eyes. I can sense her heart is building up. In verse 48, he says, he says, then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Verse 50, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you whole. Can you imagine that woman? She showed up to the party. She's going to serve Jesus. She's going to do everything she can to make him feel welcome. Jesus flips it and serves her. Can I tell you something, church? Anytime, 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 anytime you put yourself in a position to serve others and to serve Jesus, every single time you're going to discover Jesus will wind up serving you. And that's what happens. But there's one more act of kindness. There's one more act of serving. You see, it's just as important in the ancient world as it is in our world. It's not just how you enter a room. It's how you exit a room. And when you enter a room, these certain things are expected. But when you exit a room, if someone leaves your house, glad you came. Hope you'll come back. Good to see you. Walk them to the door. Make sure they get to the car Okay. And Jesus knew Simon was going to do nothing for this woman, so he does it himself. Last three words, verse 50. Three words. Go in peace. End of story. That's it. Now, when Jesus tells us a little part here in the middle, verses 41 to 43, he's not saying, hey, Simon, hey, dude. No, somebody here is sinful. Somebody owes a big debt. But it's not you. You are the most righteous guy, most holier-than-thou person at the banquet. That's you. You're you're not the one who owes a whole lot. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, in fact, just the opposite. He said, Simon, the greatest sin here is the sin of lips that will not kiss. It's not the prostitute woman. It's to suit the sin of knees that will not bend. It's the sin of tears that will not cry over their own sin and their own brokenness. It's hands that will not serve. That's the greatest sin. And here's the lesson I would encourage you to take away. If the greatest command is to love, then the greatest sin is. It's the refusal to obey the greatest command. Simon, don't you see? The greatest sin of all is you. Simon, if only you could weep like the woman and fall down on the ground beside the woman. If you could only fall down on the ground and weep going, how did I get here? If you could only do that, Simon. If you, Simon, could only lower yourself and be overwhelmed that God loves you anyway, just the way you are, and you'll be so overwhelmed with gratitude that you would wash my feet with the woman with your own tears and her tears mixed together. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing, Simon, if you could lower yourself to do that? It'd be amazing. But oh no, Simon. 
I find this very interesting. The woman had a broken heart. And she needed God's grace to heal it. But Simon had a hard heart. And he needed God's grace to heal it. In your notes, number four, a hard heart needs more grace than a broken heart. I've seen this too many times. If you're here this morning, you're watching online here this morning, you're joining us from wherever during the week, whatever time of day or night you're joining us here, I want you to hear this. If you have a broken heart, if somebody has stepped on you and abused you and hurt you and maimed you, God has enough grace through his son Jesus, and he wants to, and he will heal it if you will let him. But if you have a hard heart, a cynical heart, and you keep people at a distance, and you see people and look down on them, you condemn them, you judge them, you think, and you kind of push yourself up when you're, and your heart gets hard, and you're in a relationship, and somebody has hurt you, and somebody's done something, a child, a brother, a sister, a parent, a spouse, and you kind of got this edge within you pushing back because your heart is hard. God can soften it with his grace if you will let him. Because where there is no serving, there's a love problem. This lesson is so important that Jesus taught it his whole life, even up to the very end of his life in John chapter 13. The day before he is to die, they're about to have another foot washing experience. They're going to have a meal. And I just wonder if all the disciples remember this story right here about the woman who washed his feet with the tears. Because they walk in to this upper room and somebody needed to wash the feet and nobody would wash the feet. They're arguing among themselves about who's the greatest. I'm not washing the feet. Did somebody hire a foot washer? Somebody bring in somebody from the outside to wash the feet? Whose job is it anyway? It's not my job. Do do I have to do everything around here? Is there anybody here who goes home and ever says, do I have to do everything around here? Is it my job? Is it my job? Do I have to do it? I'm sure that's never happened. And Jesus says, well, it's my job. There's no other place in the history of any other writing where a rabbi washes the feet of his disciples except this man Jesus in John chapter 13 in this book called the Bible. And he takes off his outer clothing, puts a towel around his waist, and he washes the feet of his own disciples. And then he says to him and to us, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. I am. You're right. That's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Who are you going to serve this week? When you walk out of this building and you go back to your homes, let me ask you, who are you going to serve? Who do you have in your life whose, acts, whose love language is acts of service? Let me tell you, my wife's love language is acts of service. And at this time in 43 years of our marriage, it's a little different than what it was when our kids were small. Here's how I serve her. I serve her. She feels love 
when I do little things around the house that need to be fixed and repaired, and I get them fixed in a timely way, and it doesn't cost very much. She's really happy, and she feels like I love her so much. But not only that, here's the odd thing. She feels like I am serving her when I go to the doctor and have my annual physical. Because her second gift, her second love language is quality time. And when I take care of myself by going to the doctor and have myself checked on, and I don't care what the doctor is, that, that annual appointment, and I exercise and I take care of myself, she feels like I love her when I do that. That's like I'm serving her. I'm just saying. I've learned that's her love language. What's the love language of serving in your household? But when, my, when our kids were small, it was much different. It was on steroids. When I did things around the house, when I just kind of helped pick up stuff, I mean, oh, man, did she feel love. And it took me a long time to put that together. So finally, my wife told me something that went like this. Rick, do you understand that when I see you cleaning the house, I really feel like you care for me, and I care for you even more. In fact, when you do the dishes, I feel a little romantic. And when you bathe the boys, I actually feel a desire for you. Sometimes I would have those boys take a bath three or four times a day. Uh, there were nights I would come home from a meeting. It'd be midnight. i say, kids, get out of bed. You're taking a shower right now. I mean, it's amazing. I'm just saying, once you figure that out, man, I'm telling you what, you may have started something you can't handle. That's all I'm saying, okay? Uh, I'm just saying. But, man, it just has power. It has power, this thing called of, of serving other person. But here's something I want you to get. Two couple of quick things. Uh, being a servant is very different than being a doormat. So many marriages, so many homes, there's conflict over this. There's conflict. That's why the disciples had conflict about it. They always want to be the greatest, be the big cheese, be, be in charge. If you're in a household where someone is abusing you and using you, and it's not a full partnership, you need to have some hard conversations. Because a couple of stereotypes Jesus came to stomp out. And here, here's the first one, that leaders don't serve, that great people don't serve. But number six, here's the truth, and Jesus modeled it. Great, number six, great leaders serve. Jesus was a great leader, and he served. Great husbands serve. Great wives serve. Great parents serve. A great boss serves the other people. That's what greatness, he defines greatness in that way. We serve one another. Here's another stereotype that he blots out. That it's the job of the woman to serve and make her man happy. Some men, some women too, actually think that's biblical. And it's not biblical. The Bible talks about a husband is to lay his life down for his wife like Christ laid his life down for the church. And men, that does not mean you go to work and you do your job and you come home and hang up your clothes and then you lay your life down on the couch <laughs> while she does everything else. That's not what it means. There is no such thing as women's work and men's work. There's just work. And you serve one another. Men, if some of you would get this, you have no idea how it would strengthen your home life and your family life and your relationship with your sons and your daughters if you learn how to serve them. It will transform relationships if you will do that. It will. And it's not just in your family. It's with your friends. 
just to go pick up this week. Just go get the, go get the trash can and roll it up for your neighbor. Just go do that. You see somebody helped, had their leaves. They, they're, it's, they're overwhelmed. It's a senior citizen. Go help them take care of their leaves and bag them or whatever it takes. Go help them to do that. You heard of someone that's in trouble. They're going to the doctor. Go to the doctor with them. Just go with them and sit there with them. Just those simple, you have no idea. You're at work. Go to somebody that's in a totally different department and go, how can I help you? Can I help you finish that task? It doesn't mean it's not your job. Go help them. You'll be amazed at what will happen. And men, I will tell you right here, some of you right here in the house right now, if you want to serve your spouse, you can march your little boo hunky out of this place and go out in that crossing and you can do it online. You can say, I want to be a part of this and go check out Re-Engage. It's for marriages that want to get stronger. You want to serve your spouse? Go learn about that. Go hear about that. Be interested in that. Introduce your spouse to it. In fact, sign it up. It's 16 weeks in the fall. It's an amazing. We have seen transformation. Strong marriages get stronger. Stagnant marriages get reignited. Resurrected marriages. But just don't expect her to do it all. An act of service. And boy, you talk about quality time. And I will tell you, when you read the Bible, there's no place, there's no place, there's no place... Well, what Jesus teaches, you want to be great, you serve, and you serve in your church. And the great, who are the greatest in God's kingdom? He says, whoever wants to be the least, be the greatest, be the least. It's the people who serve. Who are the great people in Pathway Church? Who are the great ones? Who do you think we consider to be the great people around here? There's a man who should not be serving on Sunday mornings. He's got a 12-year-old that runs away, a 13-year-old that runs away because of his health challenges and mental health challenges. And he runs away from their house. They have to go find him sometime, even call the police to come help. But he serves back in our threes and fours, not with his kid, back in our threes and fours. And all the other leaders talk about how loving he is to all the kids. But nobody would, would blame him if he said, I can't do it. i got to stick with my own kid the whole time. But he doesn't do that. I will tell you, that's a picture of greatness. He laid his life down so other kids might come to know who Jesus is. That's greatness in this church. we got a young man who's 22, 23. He has Asperger's. He cannot carry on a real meaningful conversation with other people. But he shows up here every week and he takes the red bags and he weighs them and he can measure and scale it and he gets them to where they need to be. That is greatness. And I will tell you, in this church, every single time somebody says, I'll open the door for somebody so they can come in. And every time somebody new comes in, they have little kids and they're brand new. And they say, where do I take my kids? Every time somebody doesn't say, go over there. Every time somebody walks with them and takes them over there and says, here, let me connect you and introduce. Pathway Church is great. And every single time someone says, hey, I want to serve on the safety team. I want to mentor some middle schoolers. I want to go back in the kids' place and hold the hands and just rock little babies. Pathway Church is great. And so let me ask you. I invite you to stand. I just want you to stand. We're going to leave here. If you're online, you can stand with us. I just want you to stand. I want you to stand. If you call Pathway Church your home, if you're a follower of Jesus... Are you helping make your marriage great? Are you helping make your family great?
Are you helping make your workplace great? Are you waiting for somebody else to do it? Because great shows up when people serve. When people serve one other people. And if this is your church home, I would just ask you, if you're not yet serving somewhere, to get out of the bleachers and to get into the game. Because when you serve somebody else, Jesus will serve you. God, I thank you for these who are gathering in the day in the house. Would you bless them, oh God, bless them with this, this desire, God, of agape love to bless other people by just simple little things and acts of love. And strengthen us, God, as the body of Christ as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ and as he serves us. In his name we pray. Thank you for joining us. If you would like more information on Pathway or to get connected to a ministry, visit our website at pathway.church. We look forward to growing with you as we worship together. God loves you. God is with you.